Don't you find it peculiar that we both look so much alike and have the same birthday? It's just one of those things, isn't it? I don't understand. What are you doing with her picture? It's my mother. But it's my mother, too. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez, joined by the fantastic Kimberly Pierce. Kim, how are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm doing pretty awesome because we are talking to a Disney legend. I don't know if that's official. If Disney hasn't made you a legend yet, they should. That's my putting that out into the ether. All around awesome, Miss Haley Mills. Haley, how are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. And it's really nice to connect with you two lively girls. It's cheering me up here in dear old London. Oh my gosh. I talked to Julie Andrews for five minutes and I almost cried. And it's very hard for me not to want to cry now in front of you because who doesn't love Disney and Haley Mills? I'm just, I'm so happy to have you on today. (laughs) I'm very happy to be here too. It's great. I wish I was in Los Angeles. Actually, my sister lives in Los Angeles and I love it there. I've spent quite a bit of time in California. So America is like my second home. (laughs) I actually live in the Burbank, Toluca Lake area near the Disney Studios. So I'm right down the street. So it's pretty awesome to get to see it every now and then. Yes, yes, yes. It stands out, doesn't it? I know. I remember it well. Dear old place. Well, you have an amazing autobiography that's out now, Forever Young uh, Memoir. And the question that I wanted to start out with, I know you talk about this a little bit in the introduction, but for people who haven't read the book yet, why did you want to finally tell the amazing story about your life and career? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly right. I had been thinking about writing my autobiography for really quite a long time. And I tried, I'd started many times and given up and thought it was terrible and I'd never be able to make head or tail of it. I didn't know where to start. And starting is really the key, isn't it? And then a few years ago, I was invited to Disney Studios to have lunch with a wonderful man called Howard Green, who invited me. And I met some people that I'd known back in the day and some people that I hadn't met at all, lovely people, like Michael Giamo and Chris Buck, who created Frozen. So I was very, very thrilled to meet them. So all these people who work with Disney and all these wonderful, talented people were all sitting around the table. And Michael said to me, so what was Walt Disney like? I know this sounds like an apocryphal story, but it's true. And I realized I was one of the two people at the table who actually knew Walt Disney. I thought, this is extraordinary. They all were at Disney and nobody met him or knew him. And I not only met him and knew him, but I loved him. And then... After lunch, I was taken to Disney's old office, which had been completely put back together again. And it was an incredible experience because when he left the office 
and went to the hospital. He never went back and died far too young. They left the office for a long time, just how it was when he walked out the door. And then eventually they decided they had to pack it up. But before they packed it away, they photographed every single section of it, everything. And then they put it all into boxes and put it away for 50 years, actually 60 years. And then a very enterprising smart girl called Rebecca Klein had the idea of getting those boxes out and putting it all back together again, exactly how it was as a kind of living memorial. So going back to that office was, I can't tell you, it was like going back in time. I expected him to come walking through the door any minute. And then after that, I was allowed to go to the archive department where Disney, I don't know if Disney is unique in this, probably not, but they never throw anything away. Neither do I, but, you know, it's very hard to keep things organized. But so they said, now you can look through anything you want to look through. So I was given these boxes, folders, with all the information about all the six films that I made for Walt Disney. And there was everything, little notes little memos, in-house memos, all the letters that I wrote to Walt, that Walt wrote to me, that my mother wrote to Walt, that my brother wrote to Walt, you know, the telegrams, everything. It was just incredible. And I thought, my God, there is so much information here. I've got to do something with it. And I came home and I said to my family, you know, I've had this incredible experience and I've actually learned some things that I didn't know by going through these archives. And I said, I really feel I ought to write it. And my eldest son, Crispin, said, you must write it. You must write it, Mom. I said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm capable, you know. I, and he said to me, I will help you. And I believed him, and he did. <laughs> and he helped me immeasurably. He, he helped with the structure. He helped with the creative structure. And I talked it all through with him initially before I sat down to write. He gave me a thread through the labyrinth, like Ariadne. And <laughs> it all began to look like it might be possible. And then, of course, I had my journals, which were very, very, very helpful. And, of course, the thing is that it stops when my children are born, because that's supposed to be when you realize you're grown up. It doesn't always happen, but that, that's the idea. And the experience that I had working while under contract to Walt Disney and making all those movies in the early days were odd and unusual. But my experiences of going through adolescence, struggling with adolescence, is the same for everybody. Everybody. And our life situations are all different. But the experience of struggling with trying to find out who we are and what we think and what we believe. And, you know, we leave childhood behind and, you know, everyone loves children. And, and then we become plump teenagers with spots. Well, I did. <laughs> and so all that, I thought, you know, it's everybody's story. It's sort of universal, the universal struggle. Exactly. And that's, I think, what was amazing to read your book. We've been fortunate to have actors who were child stars. You know, we, we've talked to Kim Carrick, who was in The Sound of Music, and 
you know, she has some amazingly heartbreaking stories about growing up and going through that time. It was interesting. I was doing some research on the moon spinners, which I saw for the first time this year, and I really enjoyed it. And I was horrified, but I probably shouldn't be because we know how the industry is to see how many of the reviews didn't talk about the movie, didn't talk about the plot, talked about your looks, which was insane to me. I mean, you're dredging up some hard things, especially as you, you go through adolescence. I mean, for you, what was it like to go back to that time and realize, I think, how cruel Hollywood can be, especially to young women, which we're still seeing now, you know, with the whole Me Too movement and everything. It feels sometimes like things haven't necessarily changed that much. No, 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 they haven't exactly. And you're so, they're so insecure inside. In a way, becoming successful and having fame adds to your insecurity because you know that an enormous amount is expected of you, but you really don't have life experience. And you're discovering who you are every day, step by step, and dealing with putting on weight. I was very, very, very shy. And so I totally, totally, my heart goes out to girls particularly, but boys too, they have a different set of a lot of problems, don't they, in peer pressure, trying to find out who they are and whether or not they're popular with girls. And, oh, and I think it's, I think it's worse today. I think it's more difficult today because social media makes it more difficult. Yep. We can present an unreal picture of ourselves on social media, but we still have to live with the reality. So there's this dichotomy, I think. And there was that with me. There was the real me that was, you know, not knowing who the hell I was. And then there was the famous me (laughs) that I'd read about in fan magazines, who were supposed to be having all these relationships with, you know, good looking young boys and and having feuds with actresses that I'd never even met. (laughs) I'm glad to know that fake feuds amongst young women hasn't changed at all. We're still seeing it today. And I'm pretty sure we were seeing it in the 20s with silent film stars or something. Gotta love how women are feuding all the time in media. You mentioned, you know, reading about this other kind of persona. And what I was struck by was just how separate your family kept your life for so long. You had, you know, the industry stuff, but then you were away at school and your father seems like he really almost protected you from that. And I was wondering if you felt since your family was so ensconced in the industry, did that help you? Did you feel like that protected you and helped you? Or do you feel like that was almost a hindrance? I think it was six of one and half a dozen of the other, Kimberly, actually, because if I'd stayed in Hollywood, which I didn't, I immediately went back home to England and, you know, for the first few years, back to my boarding school, which was girls only. It was a very strict school. We weren't even allowed to write to boys. And if I'd lived in Hollywood, I would have had other friends, you know, my peers, And we would have all understood each other and be on the same level and had the same conversation. Whereas when I went home, nobody really understood what I was talking about and frankly, weren't that interested. Initially, oh, yes, oh, 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 you met um, Maureen O'Hara. Oh, yes, vaguely heard of her. You know, I mean, they were focused on their own lives. So it kind of distanced me. But, you know, my parents had a very, very difficult job because they had to make decisions that were going to affect 
my life forever. And they didn't know at that time, because I didn't know, if I wanted to act forever. After all, Pollyanna was successful. It wasn't quite as successful as Disney had hoped, but The Parent Trap was very successful. But I was still only 14. So they were always expecting me to say, look, I don't really want to do this acting lark anymore. I want to go and do show jumping or something like that. (laughs) Which, you know, I was crazy about horses, so it wouldn't have been impossible. So they did try to minimize the impact of Hollywood. They were always warning me about becoming a brat, getting too big for my boots and all those kind of things, (laughs) which of course is very easy. It's very easy to lose sense of perspective if you are in that very privileged position on a film. You know, people, it's their job to make sure that you're all right and all your needs are taken care of. And people running around, getting your tea and carrying your bags and all that. And here's the car. And it's very easy to get a sense of, if you're not careful, you become a little princess. And they really didn't want that. The only thing I regret, I'm very glad they didn't send me to a nunnery. They nearly did when I was, (laughs) I was asked to leave my boarding school because I kept going away and they thought I was disrupting the other girls. Not because I was behaving badly, but the fact coming and going, you know, all that. So there's only one thing that I think I would have enjoyed, and I think it would have been good for me. I would have enjoyed going (laughs) to the Oscars and pick up my little statuette. I think that would have been wonderful. Of course it would have been wonderful. But they thought, no, this is, in a way, it was all over there in California. I was in, actually, I was in my boarding school. In those days, getting to California was a, very, very long journey. You had to stop at least once, sometimes twice. My father was working. It would have meant my mother had to take. So the logistics of it were like, oh, it's not working. But many, many, many years later, I did go to the Academy Awards. And I was on stage with a lot of Academy Award winners, amazing people. It was the first time I'd been on that stage, the Kodak building. And that gave me such a shock and a boost that I realized that I'd been a tiny part of this amazing business. And I'd never really felt that before. I don't think it would have given me a big head. I think it would have, as I said in the book, I think it would have made me feel, it would have felt more real, I think. Or I would have felt a bit more responsible. I'm a big Disney history nerd. And, you know, when you look at the names people remember from Disney, it's always interesting to hear that you are often the only woman they know in the Disney canon. And I always say, Haley Mills, Jody Benson, you know, there's other names I have, but for most people, you are kind of the lady of Disney. Does that create a pressure for you? Is that weird to hear that for many people, you are kind of the lone iconic female figure in the Disney canon, pre-Marvel, of course, which I mean, now superheroes dominate Disney. But is that weird to hear? Very. Very. I've never heard anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I don't really know what that means in the grand scheme of things. But I know if I tell somebody, give me somebody, you know, who is synonymous with Disney, that's a woman. It's kind of your bust. I don't know why that is. I I think that just means we need more, we need more women in all positions of the Disney universe. But yeah, it's something that's really odd to me. (laughs) It is extraordinary. Well, I suppose I was under contract, so I did make six movies. And 
most of them did very well. They were well made, they were well written, they were very, very well cast, and they've survived. And they've become that magic word, they've become little classics, like Pollyanna and Parent Trap, so well written, well directed, brilliant cast. They're not a tremendous amount of attention, and those early films especially were so beautifully made. I mean, Pollyanna, the sets, the wardrobe, the creation of that turn of the century, small town America, it was beautiful to look at. Summer Uh, magic is the same way, I think. I'm a sucker for summer magic. That's my turn of the century one. Really? Yeah. (laughs) It could be that I saw that one first, so that maybe is it, but... Yes, yes. Yeah, that's also another beautiful one, I think, to look at that time period. You do such an amazing job in your book at painting the little snippets of the threads kind of throughout your life and the stories and the names that you bring up just fascinate me. Your book made my year just with giving me Sir Richard Attenborough as Dickie. I, I had never heard that before. And that just every time I see him now, it's like, oh, Dickie. <laughs> <laughs> it delights me to no end. And your story about receiving the puppy from Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. So yeah. with these interactions and, you know, holidaying with Rex Harrison, was there ever a time where you felt starstruck in your career as you were working with all these fascinating people? From time to time, I was. Maureen O'Hara was, she was so, so beautiful. And Carl Malden, too. I think I was, well, I don't think, I know, I was very impressed with Carl Malden, who's Oscar winner, a great actor, and a sweet person, and terrifying. <laughs> this is an extraordinary combination. Um, and I loved acting right from the very beginning, and took to it like a duck to water. And I worked with so many wonderful, wonderful actors. They were so fascinating to watch, fascinating to work with, you know, like Jane Wyman. I was certainly rather in awe of Jane Wyman. Not that she wasn't very warm and very sweet to me, she was, but she was playing my Aunt Polly, you know. So Aunt Polly, I was a bit in awe of. So of course that kind of flipped over, that bled over. But I'd sit on our lap sometimes, so it obviously wasn't too serious. And Rosalind Russell, I was quite in awe of her, actually. But again, it was probably one of the reasons why she was playing a mother superior in Trouble with Angels. So, you know, I was very (laughs) connected to the parts that I was playing and the parts that other people were playing. I am fascinated by the women behind the camera during this era in cinema and women, you know, writing, women directing. And what are your memories of working with Ida Lupino directing that film? I've talked to so many people and very few people have been able to open up about that. Why? I, I think memory. I think a lot of the people I've spoken to have been children working with her. And it's oh. I've yet to have anybody really be able to open up and share. Right, right. Well, she was an extremely brilliant woman. And she had been a very good actress. She was a very good actress herself. She was a director. She was a producer. She had her own production company. She was one of the very few women directors at the time in Hollywood. And it was an unusual experience, completely unfamiliar experience to me, 
to have a woman director. And it did take me a little time to adjust. And the energy on the set was different. And I wondered how much the rest of the crew, all of whom were men, except for the continuity girl, the hairdresser and wardrobe, but often the makeup was a man. It was very male heavy. I got used to it actually very quickly. And I very quickly realized that she knew exactly what she was doing. And I respected her and trusted her, which is very important. And Bill Fry was the producer. He'd also produced another movie I made called The Chalk Gun. And he was very creative and he liked to create a kind of an ambiance on the set. So because we were shooting, you know, it was all about nuns. He had his office decorated in black and white. Everything was black and white, everything. Even the candies in the ashtray were black and white. And so he also insisted that Ida wear nothing but black and white. And she said, okay, so she went along with it. So the whole thing was extraordinarily black and white, monochrome. And he also wanted her to wear hats. And she didn't seem to mind. The actress came out in her, I think. (laughs) And she was really lovely. And she had a great sense of humor. She called everybody sweetie and darling, which in the the beginning I thought was a little bit odd. But that was all getting used to having a, a woman behind the camera. Also, I must say that she wanted everybody on the set to call her mother, which I thought was a bit odd too. And on the back of her chair was written, instead of Ida Lupino, was written, mother of us all, which was funny. <laughs> sounds like It seems like a very Ida thing for her to do based yeah. on what I've read. That sounds like an Ida Lupino thing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, I'm curious, you've worked with so many actors that had such, I mean, going back to the early days of cinema, Una Merkel, Pola Negri, who is such a delight in the Moon Spinners, that third act coming out like the Grand Dom. Obviously, I, I would assume as a child, you know, I'd be like, I don't really care that these people were in silent film. I mean, but was there a desire to learn or interact with them? I know you've made a couple movies with Una throughout your career. What was it like working opposite two amazing legends who were going back to the Thailand era of film? That's just insane to me. I know, I know. But you know what, darling? If only I could have Googled them. That would have been so wonderful. If I could have Googled Una and if I could have Googled Pola, but I, I couldn't see. I certainly did see one film of Una Merkel's on the television, an old black and white movie. But, you know, it was years later that I learned more about them. And, of course, Pola Negri, I did know, and she certainly made it her business to make sure I knew. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like a Pola Negri. I heard she was very difficult. That's the polite word to, to I, I didn't. I didn't see that. She knew what she wanted, and she insisted that she get what she wanted. But she did tell me that Rudolf Valentino had been the love of her life. And I thought that was fascinating. And I knew, of course, that she was a huge silent movie star. And she was a very good actress. And I really enjoyed watching her in front of the camera. She seemed to sort of control some kind of fascinating energy. It was like a magnet. 
I almost expected as she moved around in front of the camera that the camera was going to move <laughs> move with her because she had a, a magnetic kind of quality about her. And she was also very funny and very wry. I think I said in the book, you know, that I was impressed how seriously she took that scene as Madame Habib on the yacht. That movie does not get enough love just in general, but I do appreciate how that third act She just owns it. It's such a minor part of the movie that has taken so many twists and turns. By the time she shows up, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. She seems like she exists here. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Yeah, she was absolutely fascinating. And to go back to what you said, you know, about being difficult, that she insisted absolutely that all her jewels be real and that the mink stole, she didn't, she dismissed the idea of mink. She wanted sable, which is much more expensive. So that meant that they had to employ a security guard to follow her everywhere she went in the studio. And she would throw this priceless sable stole over her shoulder and walk. She was actually quite a small person, but the way she walked, you'd think she was six foot tall. And the sable stole dragged in the dust behind it. She was a star of the old school. Wonderful. (laughs) I'd like to take a little bit of a step forward. I have been diving into your outside Disney films over the last few weeks and Take a Girl Like You. I found that to be a fascinating film. The collection of characters and the building of Jenny as a character is opposite these two fascinating, interesting kind of of their time male characters, you know, Oliver Reed and Noel Harrison, who's always fascinated me since the girl from uncle. And I'd love to hear you talk some about that, you know, your remembrance of shooting that and that twist ending fascinated, fascinated and delighted me how that came across and just your remembrances of that film. You know, I hadn't seen that film for so many years mm-hmm. and I watched it about a year ago with some trepidation. I have to add And I was really surprised. It was a a heightened example of attitudes in the 60s. And I thought, my God, you know, the way men talked about women then, and it was perfectly all right to do so, the way women dealt with it, had to deal with it, or else, you know, they would be rejected and, you know, they wouldn't get a job or get a husband or whatever. It was a very, very, very interesting little bit of historic little fragment. It could have, it should have been a much better movie because Jonathan Miller was a very brilliant man, a brilliant director. And he had his idea of what the movie was going to be. He wanted something a little bit more observational. He wanted to make, and he did up to a point, you know, an observation of the time. But he was at odds with the producer, who is a man called Hal Chester, who wanted to make a comedy, an entertaining, you know, a bit of a lightweight comedy. So it kind of fell between two stools, unfortunately, which is a shame. But I think it has value as just a little look back at those days. So many child stars talk about hearing audiences or people behind the camera, such an ambivalence towards being seen as a grown up. Did you ever feel that in your career? I wanted to play a much greater variety of characters. I was very attracted to playing, you know, difficult people 
And I I think it was probably because it would be in contrast to the roles that I had at Disney. And Disney had always said that the roles would be the same age as me. That's a much better way of saying it than that. But And they did. They did up to a point. But it was always within the sort of the, the, the Disney bubble, if you like. You know, and I was 16 and I still had a great big bow stuck on the back of my head. I wanted to play other things. And I had a chance to play Lolita. And I read the script. Was it the book? I think it was the book. And I understood it up to a point, as far as I was able to at 14. I wanted to work with Stanley Kubrick. And I've always been intrigued how, if I would have been any good, but that would have been really great to have done. I thought Suline was brilliant. And of course, she struggled with the image of being the nymphette for the rest of her life, you know, and I struggled with Pollyanna, really, for the rest of my life. And I'm actually way past complaining about it now. You know, it gave me a career. Who knows? I mean, there is no perfect answer to life, really. We all have to struggle away and deal with things. I know that you've talked about not doing the Lolita part. And I had read somewhere that it was more of your parents' decision to not want you to take. Do you remember those conversations at the time of being offered the part and kind of what went into having to turn it down? Yeah, I remember reading it. I remember them talking about it. And I think if it had been left to them, if I hadn't been under contract to Disney, I might have done it. But I'm not sure about that. But as far as Disney was concerned, it was a complete (laughs) no-no. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. I just rewatched the Kubrick version earlier this year, I think during quarantine. And it's still such a weird amalgamation. Like you can't ever really tell the book. 100%, but it's such a skillful way that Kubrick did that. I have no idea how that movie got made then, let alone how it would get made today, or even how they remade it in 97. It's just one of those books. It's still weirdly compelling, but so bizarre and inappropriate at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you get inside the mind of of Humbert, Humbert, don't you? Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that people took exception to, that you understood him and you shouldn't be kind of sympathetic towards somebody with his interest. And how wonderful Shelley Winters was in that movie. She's so good. Shelley Winters is just great, though, in general. I don't think she's ever been bad in anything. Going off of that, is there a performer that you didn't get to work with of that era that you wish you could have gotten the chance to work with outside of James Mason. (laughs) Right. Yes. Right. Well, Shelley Winters, definitely, definitely. And Shirley MacLaine, who I'm a huge devotee of Shirley MacLaine, Audrey Hepburn, and oh, so many wonderful women, Ingrid Bergman, Betty Davis, wouldn't it have been wonderful to work with them? But I did work with some amazing people, Deborah Carr. So I was very, very lucky. And of course, you work with the best, you learn, you learn. You're not even aware how much you're learning, but it just goes in. I was captivated in your book. You talking about the Beatles and your portion on George Harrison, where you speak about that whole experience and that kind of limited time you spent with them. I was wondering if you could just reflect a little bit on that. There's so many people who would be fascinated by 
hearing that and, you know, when they pick up your book, knowing them as John, Paul, George and Ringo and not even necessarily as the Beatles and being in those brief moments that you experienced Beatlemania. Well, it was a privilege and an experience to connect up with them from time to time and an experience firsthand what they went through. You know, my date with George uh, was really at the beginning of their great fame, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was still the reaction of the fans was absolutely extraordinary. And he handled it all so well. And then you know, I was there at the Hollywood Bowl when they did their first concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And you could not hear a single word the band were playing. And there was a helicopter hovering overhead with people hanging on this rope ladder with binoculars and cameras. And then the party afterwards and the crush of people. And of course, you know, they were very young themselves. They were like 19, 20. And They were all struggling to find themselves and know who they were. And of course, the band had to break up because they'd become this entity, whereas in actual fact, they were individuals. They couldn't really find themselves as individuals. They were just known as the Beatles. So although it was devastating when they broke up, ultimately, I did understand that was vital. It's like we have to leave our parents have to break away from the influence of our parents. We're going to find out who we are. I'm glad I wrote those experiences down, you know, in minutia. Something that people don't necessarily, I mean, they've spoken about it, but they were so in to hear an outsider's perspective. And you, throughout the book completely, you capture the humanity of your career. There were so many moments throughout that I was struck by. There was, oh, this is, I, I understand this. This is, you know, the first crushes, the, you yes, know, yes. the falling yes. in love, you know, the, how you write about horse buckles absolutely just struck me. And <laughs> <laughs> I just such an amazing book. I truly enjoyed it. Oh, thank you very, very much. I, that's great to hear because you really don't know. You you know, you don't know. So thank you very, very much, both of you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. The last question I wanted to throw out as we come to the end of our time, you know, we are big fans, obviously, of classic film, but I love asking people of that era, what are the classic films that you enjoy that people should check out? The movies that made you love movies? My goodness, yes. Well, it's one of my father's called Great Expectations, which of course is the Dickens story and directed by David Lean, my dad. And it was Alec Guinness's first film and it is black and white. And it's one of, I think, still the best film version of a Dickens story. All the characters are so brilliant in the atmosphere of, you know, the time. It's Dickens, pure, pure, pure. There's a lot of films of my dad, but it would would be a bit corny if I just named all of them. Another great, great movie that I absolutely adore is Brief Encounter, which is probably the most romantic movie, I think, uh, with Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson. It's simple and beautiful and heartbreaking. And of course, music plays a great part in making that film stand out with Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto in C minor. You know, it's, it's just, uh, uh, I, I want to watch it now. I want to go and watch it again now. And then getting a little bit later, The Apartment with Shirley MacLaine yes. and Jack Lemon. What a fabulous, brilliant 
movie that is it's classic movies um now voyager with uh, betty davis because i'm f- so fascinated by her of course casablanca no surprise there I'm sure that there's millions of them, but how about that for a handful? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good starter pack right there. I think that's some yeah. of the best, some of the best movies one can watch. I, I do love, we've had many celebrities on this podcast and everyone has Jack Lemon reference and we have not broken the streak today. I'm very happy oh. we got it. We got a Jack. Yeah. Le- we either get a Jack Lemon story, we get a Jack Lemon reference, or we get Jack Lemon shows up somehow in every episode. I'm glad the streak is not done. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm very glad too. Yeah. See, I'm well, glad we got a Trevor Howard reference in there. Exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to work that in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Haley, your book, Forever Young and Autobiography, is now out wherever you get books. But where can fans find what you're working on, social media? Feel free to share anything oh. you would like. Oh, okay. Well, I have an Instagram account. I'm not quite sure how you'd find it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they can search your name and it'll come up. So it's just only it's quite new. So we're just slowly putting things together and it's it's new to me. So it's just that is quite fun. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, You can find Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify. Please, if you are on Apple Podcasts, or even if you aren't, you just want to help us out, leave us a review there because that is a big boon to our Q rating. You can also find us on all the social medias, including Twitter and Instagram, if you search Ticklish Biz. And we have our YouTube channel, which is inching every day to getting its own URL. But right now you have to search for Ticklish Business Podcast. And as always... We have our Patreon going hot and fierce with new content, including interviews, written content, and we just finished up our true crime summer, looking at all sorts of different crimes for Based on a True Podcast. That's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And as always, our website, which has all sorts of other additional content, is journeysandclassicfilm.com. We will be back with a new episode soon. Until then.